All right. So welcome to a special uh, limited edition of uh, the podcast. I'm doing a video version. So if you're listening to this on your podcast, you can go to YouTube and watch it. And you can also on Spotify, I think you can actually watch it there too. But I have a guest today who I hope will disagree with me in ways that are respectful and fun. So uh, Aaron, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and why we're listening to you today. Yeah, I can't uh, necessarily promise respectful, but I can promise fun. And it's a shame anybody who's only listening to the audio is going to miss out seeing our beautiful faces. <laughs> but uh, no, Aaron Gore, I'm the Senior Director of Business Development for Bavana Partners. Uh, we're a group that works with small breweries from across the world, and not just beer, but also kombucha, uh, hemp products, variety of other categories. But key thing that we're trying to do is just find solutions for a lot of the basic constraints and the basic challenges that face these artisan driven industries because you know they they're kind of coming into it with a, a ton of value for the customer but not necessarily business models that are self-sustaining so if we're able to provide some specialization and help bridge those gaps get them to where they need to be that's really kind of the goal all right well i think it's a unique business and i'm interested to hear kind of your perspective on the industry but one of the reasons ultimately that i want to have you on is we are i am uh, releasing the article today uh, on brewbound and so kind of how to save your brewery and some of the, I don't know, tempered doom and gloom, I guess, in a way, but hopefully in a positive light of shit's bad, but we're going to fix it. And here's how maybe, or here's some ideas. And so um, anyways, I'm hoping that your perspective is a little bit different and I'm curious to see from what you guys have done, how that works. But um, you know, let's just start with the facts, first of all, and then we'll get into kind of what I said. So just make sure we're on the same page that, you know, I have been saying over and over that we're losing breweries quickly, that... Mm -hmm. Uh, ultimately, the the model you're starting to see break down in a way, and some of the weaker operators are definitely falling off. But disappointingly, from my perspective, and one of the reasons I started the podcast is that it isn't just the morons and who I and I always say on the podcast, I don't interview assholes that make shitty beer and ugly packaging. Uh, at the end of the day, we know why that didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's tough out there, and you obviously see it from your perspective. Do you think it's easy? Do you think it's easier than I do? <laughs> Where are you at? Now, e easy is one area I will never say that this industry is, you know, our, our economics are kind of screwed from the from the jump. Uh, and, you know, without diving too deep into the nitty gritty, I think one of the things that uh, is absolutely critical in this industry is our cash cycle is absolutely upside down. You know, a lot of times we wind up carrying more debt service than we can manage. Uh, our margins are not nearly what they need to be. And most importantly, we have a very low degree of specialization, which leads to everybody basically replicating costs across the entire industry. It's just all a long way of saying that, no, it's not easy. And even in the uh, the best of circumstances, not only is it not easy, but it is incredibly high risk. And you can say that about a lot of small businesses, but, you know, a lot of CPGs, you know, consumer uh, packaged goods, especially, but our industry is not easy. There, there's an enormous amount of challenges, enormous amount of headwinds, and we were very fortunate to be buoyed by the early adopters and by the growth of the entire category for so long and for the first time ever we're starting to operate like a more typical industry as opposed to what uh, a lot of folks got in their mind was supposed to be typical which was just this unbounded infinite growth and you know basically the field of field of dreams method uh, you know if you brew it they will come which was never really the truth but it was a uh, a very nice uh, kind of myth building exercise we went through for a long time yeah well so i agree with you on that and one one area that i during my research anyways and definitely with the people that i've interviewed i've found more and more of that uh even during those times that we all kind of claimed that things were well, or from my perspective, that the Brewers Association incorrectly insinuated that we were all doing well, 
uh, a lot of these guys were still closing and they were just closing quietly or merging or getting on more debt. And so a lot of the people that I have interviewed, you know, went out of business two or three times effectively and then just recapitalized or refinanced. And so I know it's my argument is that I think that this is more like a systematic thing that we're just now seeing kind of come to light as people just get exhausted and they're like, you know what, I'm not going to keep fighting this fight. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you guys work with some breweries that struggled as well and have found a, a niche with you, but you also kind of have a positive outlook on the industry, at least online. So tell me about that. Yeah, like, yeah no, a hundred percent. So I, I think one of the, the areas where I think maybe even disagree might be a strong term, but you know, for me, this is really a lot more about the industry, you know, as I alluded to earlier, just starting to behave like a normal industry. You know, I mean, if you look at our openings, they still exceed our closings, not by much. And even if we see that be relatively flat, at least in a temporary fashion, um, that's still doing better than traditional bars, which have been in uh, large scale decline for basically the last 20 plus years. Uh, you look at traditional restaurants, uh, they've been largely flat with some years of growth, some years of decline. But if you look at them, they've had an enormous amount of churn and small business in general has an enormous amount of churn. But we saw such positive growth in terms of the raw number of firms that the ones that were closing, because you're 100% right, they've always, we've always had a huge number of breweries that are closing. It's just now we're finally starting to see those numbers reach the point where they're impossible to ignore. And, you know, I, I really think we need to, instead of seeing that as being apocalyptic, see that as normal, especially for an industry that right now, the biggest thing, at least in my opinion, is that we're entering the maturation phase. We entered that growth phase, uh, picked up those early adopters, started to creep into the mainstream, and that in any kind of category, you're going to see a huge amount of fragmentation, which is what we saw. That's how you get 10,000 breweries and a million different SKUs on the shelf. It was inevitable we were going to see a consolidative phase that's part of growing up. It's part of shaking out, uh, to your point, operators who probably should have never been in the first place, but also the ones that got themselves over leveraged or chased uh, down what were good strategic moves, but got themselves in a position where stubbing their pinky toe on a pebble was enough to bring the whole house of cards falling down. Uh, and that for me isn't necessarily a bad thing because it was always going to happen. Pandemic accelerated it. We've definitely seen those trends speed up with uh, misuse of, of a lot of the funds that came through for the government through the pandemic. But I do see that just as one step towards us having another smaller but more mature growth phase and getting to the point where we have a much healthier industry uh, in the long run. So I guess for me, I think the best years of craft beer are actually in front of it. We're just going through a really rough patch right now that's going to seem like uh, the sky is is absolutely falling because for a lot of individual operators, it very much will be. Yeah, well, and I've I've argued many times that it has to. And I think that mm -hmm. that's the biggest problem in my personal opinion. And then after talking to, you know, a variety of different people throughout the industry, from retailers to brewers, to even the freaking distributors that none of us like, um, some of us like, I should clarify. And actually I interviewed I have 68 <laughs> distributors who I love all equally. Um, and they, they're an absolute lifeblood of this industry, but no, seriously, they have a hundred percent agree. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but the more people I've talked to, more people I've talked to you about that, that there needs to be a correction. And this is one that I may agree with you in a very different way on this one. Um, I don't think 12,000 breweries is smart. I think that if we don't pull back to eight or seven or six is too far for, I think it's a, that's a bloodbath. I don't want to see, but the reality is if we don't have some negative growth in outlets, we're going to be in deep shit until we start growing the market share, 
which still is only at 13% overall in the beer category. That's not enough for all the operators that are out there, in my opinion. Yeah, that's an area where I'll definitely differ with you. And I know this is one that you and me have, uh, is again, we always have good conversations. So You're wrong. Also not there. <laughs> yeah, how dare you, sir? But, um, you know, we have, we have almost 12,000 wineries in the U.S., which are almost entirely concentrated in California from a raw number standpoint in an industry that has half the market share. And of that market share, a full 40% plus of it is imports. So... I don't think the pure number of firms, for one, I don't think it's a good metric for success, but I also don't think that we've reached the point of saturation on that. What I do think we have too many of right now are uh, breweries trying to play in wholesale distribution, because that is an area where you typically need to put a tight focus. You really do need to uh, be a top tier operator to be able to compete for shelf space that is dwindling. There's more choices uh, than ever for retailers. And you know, they're going to have to sacrifice something to be able to add the next RTD, to be able to add the next hard T. And even if those are speculative ads, something's getting kicked out to make room for them. So pandemic accelerated everybody going into distribution, accelerated everybody going into packaging. Um, that's an area where I think more and more people do need to pull back and say, hey, am I making a concerted effort where I am really specializing being a distributing brewery? Or for the vast majority, they need to take a look in the mirror and say, hey, I might deliver kegs to a handful of accounts around me, but I do need to make my focus my tap room because that is the territory that I own. That's an area I know Sam Holloway, uh, who I, I don't know if you know Sam from uh, Crafting a Strategy. He's uh, been a big advocate for, he's a professor at the uh, University of Oregon, Portland, or University of Portland, sorry, um, where he teaches uh, MBA courses and uses kind of craft beer as a model organism for it because our business cycles are so fast and so stupid. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, he's he's been advocating for that for years is that the, the biggest issue we have is there's too many people who think they're going to be the next Sierra Nevada or even just the next biggest distributing brewery in town. And for most of them, they're just going to be the local watering hole that happens to brew their own beer. And that's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely profit there. If you keep it small, keep it tight, keep it as a bar. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a lot. I mean, you're going to barely, you know, make like a decent living, but you would be able to make a decent living. And, survival. Have some, and I thought some that was something on. you did well in your article as well. So you need to be the coolest bar in town. Um, for one, I will say we're well past the point in the U.S. where just being a brewery is a big enough differentiator for your tap room. It still needs to be about the experience, and you still need to know your core differentiators from everybody else in town. That's something I just spoke on at the Florida Brewers Conference. Uh, we were having a discussion on branding, a seminar on branding I was teaching, and that was one of my key things. Is if you can't tell your customers in under 30 seconds what makes you different from every other bar or restaurant in town, I guarantee you that customer won't be able to either. That's yeah. still important. And that's just blocking and tackling. That's the basics of running any sort of business. Yeah. And it's hard, just harder and harder. We, we see now, I don't know if you guys see that in your area, but there's a lot of bars and restaurants that won't carry a bar, a brewery that does well on premise at their own place because it's competition. So if they're either undercutting the market or just being too goddamn popular, they just don't yeah. want. It definitely depends on the market. Charlotte's usually where the area that I live, Charlotte, North Carolina, is usually pretty ready to, to bring the local favorites on. But we also have a handful of brands that have near total penetration in our market to the point where if you didn't have them on, you'd lose customers, even if they are a big deal right down the street from you. Uh, but even places like Raleigh, that you're 100% right. You know, some of those accounts, especially the more savvy ones, and if I were a beer buyer, I'd be in the same boat. 
I'm not going to put you on if it's just going to be driving business uh, down the street to your tap room. So got to own your backyard, but that's also always a challenge you have to do. And it's also one big reason not to try and undercut or uh, battle for price with the bars and restaurants around you. That's the quickest way to tick them off. If you're at least comparable in price, they've got their own differentiators, whether geographic or experience based. So, you know, it's a fair fight. Right. But if you're trying to come in at $2 uh, under them a pint, then yeah, that's going to tick them off a bit. Yeah, we're doing too many promotions too. I know some of the bars that have like a, a Texas Tuesday night. Yeah. If you're doing a promo on Tuesday too, they get a little unhappy about that, which makes sense. You're in competition. That's the whole point. Yeah, got to accept yeah, they, it. Yeah, that's our biggest competition. And as much as our industry loves to look at the brewery down the street, and that is competition. Bars and restaurants are competition as much as their customers. We got to keep that in mind. Yeah. So one one area I do want to make sure to uh, verbally disagree with you, the, the winery um, argument. The more wineries that I talk to, I think they are actually worse off profitability-wise than breweries. <laughs> and so in my opinion, um, I don't think 10,000 breweries is bad for the marketplace in the sense that we have more ready access to beer, the consumers may be a little more educated, but I think I know that it cuts out profitability for everybody. And there's just, there's at least three to 5,000 breweries that aren't profitable. So from mm-hmm. the argument of like, oh, well, there's 12,000 wineries, well, if there's 5,000 that aren't profitable, that's not a world I want to live in, that's my point, I guess, but... Oh, and I can completely understand that. But I do think that if we enter into an era of this industry, like I guess my biggest point would be the fact that a lot of breweries, the reason that they're not profitable is stuff that's fixable. Um, and it's fixable without a fundamental shift in what the beer industry is. But uh, I know you mentioned in your article, contract brewing as being an option that can make a huge difference for a lot of breweries. And there's a lot of ways to go upside down on contract brewing, but it's also a very valuable resource because one huge issue that we have as an industry is that everybody feels like they have to own their own stainless and that's not the case like customers do not care uh, about where the products produced they do care that there's a human behind it that is true they can sense that sense of authenticity in the storytelling the sense of authenticity in the recipe creation they want to know there's a there's a real person behind the beer but they don't care if it's being made at a facility that's down the street that makes 8 trillion barrels a year like they want to know that joe is the one who came up with it but they understand that that's a manufacturing process. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's beer in a glass. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the same thing goes for a lot of elements. You know, we're not the only people in town who are trying to find solutions to be able to help breweries consolidate the areas that they can build economies of scale into the areas they can. So that the places where they cannot, which is that product innovation, that is that taproom experience, it is that authenticity and that brand building. Those are the things you can't scale. Those are the things that, you know, if you try to scale them, you lose a lot of the consumer value. If we or whoever else is trying to solve this problem is able to provide them with the opportunity to get back to that and then consolidate things like scalable production and wholesale management, logistics, warehousing, um, then everybody winds up benefiting because those are the elements that the customer doesn't care about anyways. Those aren't providing them value and it isn't taking them away value uh, if it's done by by someone else in a more sustainable fashion. You sure shit can't taste it. So it doesn't make any difference. Like, yeah. God, man, if you, thank God you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and in a lot of cases too, it'll, it'll up consistency. And you know, I've said for yeah. years, good, good is good. Consistency is best. You know, for most customers, a consistent product matters way more than a good product. That's also key to brand building. And there's a reason that the Big Mac is as popular as it is. There's a reason that Bud Light is as popular as it is because, you know, I don't like Bud Light. 
But I know that a Bud Light that I have in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and one that I have in Tampa, Florida, and one that I have in Seattle, Washington, are all going to take a, taste exactly alike right now, and they probably would have back in 1992. That's a, a hugely impressive thing to say. The same one will taste the same next week if you put it in your fridge, probably, too. But uh, like- We've all found that one that's been hiding there from the last house party for like three years, and you taste it, and you're like... Yeah. Yep. Basically tastes like Bud Light. Not any worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It still tastes like water. Well, I think that actually kind of brings up two of the points that I put in the article is one that, you know, find a model that makes you money. And I do think that we would absolutely agree on this one, but as you know, one of my buddies owned a cidery and it was one of the most authentic ciders. They did you know, spontaneous, they did barrel age. It was just two brothers and it just didn't work. And they found a model where, you know, similar to you, there's a brewery that just had kind of a weird runaway product. They did really well. They overexpanded, had a bunch of capacity, and now they're contracting a meadery, a cidery, another brewery, and they're even storing cans for another brewery. And I think that is what matters. And not one customer has ever noticed, like they don't care anymore. And, and honestly, it's a hundred percent the case. I mean, we, you can make great beer and be a home brewery, get in this industry, sell great beer. Uh, yeah. I make a point of driving a home to everybody who I consulted with over the years, everybody who I give seminars to, uh, you have to find something that makes money and you can make money by being a very passionate artisan niche producer if you own that niche. But hey, that's a tough road to, to hoe. You really got to make sure that you're nailing it and you have customers out there. But you know, at the end of the day, you got to keep the lights on. You got to keep a roof over your head. Uh, and to your point, you know, uh, being able to contract that, you know, we've really seen a lot of ground broken by some of the early Nomad breweries, the ones like Mickler, the ones like Evil Twin, who are grim, that really started as unhoused uh, nomadic, uh, basically brand in a box. You know, the brand and the recipes was the brewery. They didn't have their own equipment for a long time. And some of those still don't. Uh, those really showed that customers were a lot less concerned about where it was produced and a lot more concerned about who is behind it. And that that's not something we have to lose. There's still an enormous amount of area for us to find a lot more efficient ways because frankly, some of those larger facilities can make better and make cheaper beer than you'd be able to in your own facility anyways. So let them, let them specialize. That, that's the whole point. Yeah, then you can get the economies of scale in that. I just, like I said, I, I interviewed Joe Plouffe at uh, Hanging Hills and that's what he did. And I'll, he kind of explained to me the model and I just sort of sat there and was like, huh. Never really thought of it that way. I think you might be onto something. And more and more people I see contracting, I just think it makes a lot of sense yeah. overall. Um, and it, I think it was Bob Sylvester from uh, Saint Somewhere that said, "We now have Bob's as- a character." Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I think he said, "We now have as many breweries as we do uh, uh, Burger Kings." And I thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, but Burger Kings profitable because they don't all have their own brew house, right? They've got like a regional warehouse that makes all the stuff, and then just they're just basically tap rooms. And so if we lay that over the beer industry, we have a shitload of excess money being wasted on all these different individual steel tanks and processing facilities that they don't need to be there. They're not adding efficiency to the system. Uh, 100% agreed on that one. Um, Yeah, that that is one area where we just don't need to replicate. Uh, You know, it's, it's one thing to own your own facility, but you're paying for that square footage, whether you're filling every single tank up or whether you're only filling one or two of them up in a given month. So it's a very easy way to go upside down. And for a lot of breweries, that's the biggest challenge is they start winning themselves to death. You know, they start seeing that production increase. They wind up investing in large scale production, you know, a huge production facility. And the issue there is you're basically subsidizing your future by mortgaging your present. 
you know, you have to take the L by, you know, paying for that square footage, paying for those tanks, servicing that debt, even if it's going to take you quite a bit of time to fill up every one of those tanks or fill up that square footage with additional uh, infrastructure. So that's one of the cheap areas I've seen breweries go upside down. I've seen very, very successful breweries that are doing multiple millions of dollars in distributed revenue that have found themselves absolutely upside down for that exact reason, because their overhead winds up spiking because all they see is that consistent growth. And even if you do wind up hitting that consistent growth, that's still quite a bit of deadweight loss getting there. And if you fall short, even for a short period of time, you can go from the most successful brewery in your backyard to the most closed brewery in your backyard in no time. I mean, that's what we saw with modern times uh, for all the the uh, Monday morning quarterbacks talking about everything that went wrong with that operation. That was really the big issue was they were chasing so much success that all it would take is one, not even stumble, a slowdown, even even what would normally be huge growth for a company to bring the whole thing toppling down. And that's exactly what happened. I, I know there's a few other breweries that are in similar situations. I won't name names, but <laughs> there's even some that we all laud as the, uh, the uh, pinnacle or at least the ideal of the way to do this industry. And if everything goes according to plan, they 100% will be. But all it takes is one small issue coming up. Bank don't care. They still want their money. Um, your investors don't care. They still uh, want to see returns. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's a very, very difficult thing to surmount. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on the same token, I think, like like I said in there, too, that uh, your building may kill you. It's going to be the same thing with all mm-hmm. this rent coming up, man. It's, um, I know you had one in Atlanta that we lost, Second Self, and I went out and met those Jason's guys. Jason's a friend, man. Yeah, he's a great dude. Um, yeah. I love, I've been drinking their beer almost since day one. I'm in South Carolina, technically. I'm uh, not too far away. And that one was heartbreaking. Yeah. I actually visited them on their closing day and got to drink some of the beer and hang out with them. And he had told me, yeah, three times the rent. Um, there's a cidery in Cal- California. I interviewed same things, three times the rent. You're just seeing that more and more that people have gotten extended on the, yeah. the building and they needed to be somewhere cool or funky and the rent's just going to go through the roof. So yeah, not another sales pitch for Bavana, but maybe a reason to consider <laughs> something like that. Right. <laughs> no, a hundred, hundred percent, man. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. A hundred percent of sales pitch for Bavana. Reach out to us if you're uh, looking to uh, looking to make your business more sustainable. But <laughs> rent goes um, up. Call Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> but you're a hundred percent right. Uh, what, I mean, it's a huge challenge within this industry, leases especially, because for a lot of uh, landlords, a lot of realtors, what they're looking for is to use brewery tenants as a way of being able to bring in uh, basically top top shelf renters they it increases the premium in the neighborhood significantly there's a lot of uh, a lot of studies that have shown that you can actually charge something I don't want to misquote the number, but it's an appreciable double digit percentage additional rent just by having a nearby brewery. So it is a very valuable thing for landlords. The issue is it's also a very inefficient waste of space because especially if you have a production brewery, so you have space that's dedicated to something that isn't consumer facing in those you know, top tier lots, they could get a lot more by parceling out that uh, space and going for something that frankly has just bigger margins to spend like a cocktail bar or a club or or frankly, just about anything other than a brewery. (laughs) So what they do is they use uh, these breweries as anchor tenants to build up the demand. And then once it's self-sustaining demand, they kick the brewery tenant out or hike the, uh, hike the rent to the, what they could be getting. 
And that either forces people out, forces them under, or makes it so that they don't want to renew their lease. And then they can get something in that can pay that. So it's a huge challenge. And after cash cycle problems, the single biggest closure reason for breweries is lease issues. So that's something that, you know, you have to be careful about, you know, a lease isn't necessarily a, you know, a bad thing. You just have to really keep in mind the fact that you are not the one in the driver's seat. And, you know, the person who has their hand at the controls does not necessarily have your best interest in mind, even if they're not doing anything wrong. They're just a self-interested actor, which is, you know, the nature of anybody in the market. Yeah, you, you could say right or wrong, but at some point. Yeah, they're kind of assholes. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, they got lord well, in the name. you gotta expect it, if nothing else. <laughs> if you walk around calling yourself a lord, you're a you're a cunt. I don't care. But yeah, uh, it's not a, not not inaccurate. I'll go ahead yeah. and, and hide that uh, unofficial Scottish lordship that I applied for. But that's not true, by the way. I did not. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so I, one of the other things I'm hearing more and more, which surprised me because I kind of did this, and I kind of thought that I was the only idiot that did, but. When I when you make your range of beers, like so many people are making ones that they know are cool or they're based on a homebrew recipe, which is not built for efficiency, it's built for flavor. And then when you scale it up, um, you just sort of make it. Maybe you, you win an award like Richard did, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately, when they sit back down, they realize that production scale that these beers aren't profitable. That there's just there's no real money at the retail price when you back it out, particularly on cans. But you know, I mean, even even yeah. some of the draft products. Are you seeing any of the breweries that you guys work with that had that issue where they, they had a flagship that was killing them? Oh, that we have not only seen that, but, you know, we've seen that actually be a driving uh, issue for breweries of being able to stay afloat. Uh, and a couple of things are usually at play there. For one, the average person entering this industry, even if they are creating recipes uh, for the market, you know, that aren't just legacy from their homebrew days. They're not, there's not a ton of discipline around uh, creating a finished product versus, there's a huge amount of focus on inputs versus outputs. And that, that's a huge problem because you're able to look at that recipe and say, look at all this cool stuff I'm putting in, whereas you might be able to put out the exact same beer with significantly fewer, significantly less costly inputs. Um, that's one of the huge areas that we help a lot of the companies that we work with on is taking a look at every single recipe they have. And we can say, this one needs to be about the same, you know, there's just no replacing those, but you have seven different types of hops in here and only two of them are contributing anything to this. Uh, if we're able to scale those out, we're able to save you guys an enormous amount of money and still get a beer that tastes exactly the same. Uh, that is just not a discipline our industry has from the get go and it leads to a lot of uh, dead weight loss there. Um, another big issue to your point is, you know, just not really an understanding of cogs. Uh, I've said for years, I don't know if you know Audra Gijunas uh, from Brood for Her Ledger. Uh, she's basically the best known kind of finance person uh, in the industry. She does fractional CFO work for a lot of companies. Crooked Staves, probably your most famous client, but uh, she's based at Asheville, good friend. But Audra's seminars, she's probably presented at more seminars than any other single person in our industry. And her presentations are always, to the letter, the single most important one that any single brewery owner can attend. Because an accounting 101 course is the single best investment you can make as a prospective brewery owner. Because if you do not understand your COGS, then every single strategic uh, uh, decision that you make downstream of that is going to be built on nothing. I've seen very successful breweries go upside down because they didn't have a good understanding of their own costs. 
Like I had uh, one brewery that I worked with uh, in the past that they were losing a buck 50 on every single case that they sent out at their flagship that made up 42% of their total sales. They were going absolutely upside down while they were looking at the revenue going up, up, up. And they're like, we're winning so hard. How are we losing <laughs> so bad? And that's what it wound up being. And it wasn't anything unfixable. A better understanding of costs let us do exactly that. Revisit the recipes. Get those costs down pretty simply. Take another look at pricing structure. Pricing strategy is another area our industry is just not very sophisticated on. But there's really good best practices there that, you know, you go up a dollar, your volume hasn't moved at all because thankfully price sensitivity is not a huge issue in this industry. And all of a sudden you're right-sided again. Now you went from a business that was winning so hard and losing so bad to a business that's just winning so hard. And I think those are the the biggest areas that our industry stands to benefit. It's just, you know, simple stuff that because we're an artisan-driven uh, business, artisan-driven industry, it's just not baked into the pudding for them to even have an understanding or a drive to understand. Yeah. Well, and to, to the point, I think that they actually, we, we grew so fast that there was no way that there were going to be that many seasoned operators that had time to even almost really run a business model and business plan. Yeah. And uh and then just, there's this thing, and I touched on this a little bit in the beginning of the article, where people almost just sort of get jealous. And so if XYZ Brewery has a line out the door, they just wanted to win hard, and they needed to have yeah. that excitement because that was the original goal. The profit for most of us wasn't really on the table, but there just comes a point where we have to have it on the table. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. And you, you did cover in your article the fact that, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that you're not in this for the money. That's fine. But if you can't make rent and you can't keep your lights on, then see how quickly you're able to keep that reputation up. Because the moment you can't make beer or keep your doors open, all of a sudden, your reputation starts to tank. So it's, it's okay to be in it for the art. But you could have been, uh, you know, again, you could have been in it for the art as a home brewer. You're in it for the art and to sell it, you know, make it sustainable. It's a business, you know, that's why the banks and the year investors need to see a business plan. The difference is now they actually need to see a real one instead of uh, what passed for one for so long because our industry is so damn cool. Yeah, they just got excited about writing it too. Um, oh man, oh, yeah. I've seen some really bad business plans get funded by banks. It's not happening anymore. It hasn't happened in four or five years, but you know, the uh, early to mid 2000, uh, 2010s rather. Yeah, you could basically walk in and say, so here's my idea, a brewery. And the banker would be like, nope, you're in, you're funded. That was about all it took. Well, I, I had a Sleeman on the show partially because I had the same experience. And I was kind of like, I'm really curious if this guy's a complete moron because you just never know. Oh. And he turns really out, is not, man. Sleeman's the best. I, yeah, I it turned out he's fantastic. But his loan was a similar story to what you're talking about. The bank that he was at at the time, like there was just some rich guy's kid and the bank's like, just write it. He's like, I don't know how to write it. He's like, I don't care. Write it. And so he just kind of like, the first one was bullshit. And then he learned from there kind of how to get better, which is great. But Oh, and, and he'll be the first to tell you that they're they're tightening up a lot, um, which, you know, the, the banks are probably the canniest operators in the entire thing, you know. Wholesalers are always fighting uh, the last war. That, that's what they're famous for. They're always on the, the last trend just as soon as the next one hits. Um, and they're very conservative organizations by default. So they're not the best people to tap for what's coming up in the industry. And suppliers are the opposite. They tend to be hopelessly optimistic. They're always uh, two trends into the future. So they're always chasing something that hasn't happened yet. But the banks, 
they get paid on on dollars and cents and that's about it so they, they will be the first people to tell you exactly where the uh the trends are going and where they are not yeah and there's they're the ones that stand to lose the most in many cases but mm-hmm. yeah well so here's one you might disagree with me on i'm curious so um i put in there that it's time to just put your expansion plans in the freezer like if if you're in three states and you want to go to 10 you're in deep shit if you're in two counties and you want to get the whole state i don't recommend that i think it's a bad idea <laughs> i i think expansion is great as long as your expansion is going deeper instead of wider um but one way or the other i think y- you have to make sure that you have good uh, essentials one way or the other uh that's a huge huge part of what we, we wind up doing is for a lot of breweries even we've, we're in talks with a, a few regional breweries as well we're talking in that like 40 to 60,000 barrel a year range. Uh, and what they've even started to notice is that the further away from home they get, they wind up going upside down on a lot of, you know, what we can almost call like incidentals, you know, mm-hmm. you got a higher rep that becomes that much more challenging. A lot of POS materials, a lot of merch. Uh, you have a lot less accountability. You just can't be on your wholesaler. That level of support's just not there. Logistics, freight become a lot more complicated. So even for a lot of them, they're starting to realize that, you know, going a mile deep and an inch wide is is the way to go for a lot of breweries, even getting, I don't know, a kilometer deep would be, you know, really nice for them to be able to do. But um, yeah, I, I, I think expansion is still on the table. The issue is you have to dedicate to it and you have to dedicate to it hard. Uh, and if you cannot produce a huge amount, huge volumes of beer consistently, reliably, uh, you know, you're never going to be able to penetrate into a market two states over if you have a risk of out of stocks, because that far over, you're not going to be getting in with the diehards. They're buying local. So you have to be able to get in with more casual consumers at chain. You're never going to be able to get into chain retail if there's any risk of out of stocks or if there's a lack of support. So you have to be able to sustain the uh, infrastructure that goes into that, which is, you know, not only being able to make your margin out there, but being able to support a body in the market, being able to support events, being able to support POS materials, in caps racks, what have you, that starts becoming prohibitively expensive very quickly. I do think the breweries that are going into additional tap rooms are not necessarily uh, as constrained. There's some like modern, uh, uh, sorry, Monday night and uh, high wire that are doing really well at that. I think that they're creating a kind of a new model uh, that has been very successful for them. And I do think there's a cap on how many of those can flood in there. But I do think a second or a third tap room, it's slow, it's expensive, it's high risk. But when it works, it works very, very well. Um, I think you're going to see a whole lot more of that. Particularly if you have a production facility and you're not trying to put in another brewery in that spot. But it's yeah, more stop putting more. in another brewery. Customers do not care. You do not need a brewery at every single location unless it's required by state law. Trust me, customers do not care. They, they care that there's somebody, again, at the wheel, but they really don't care if it's being made on site. And every single person I've ever seen argue otherwise has never been able to produce even a shred of evidence, sometimes even from within their own company, that that's the case. Customers don't care. Yeah. They know there's a brewery out there somewhere making it. They know there's a person at the helm, but like, you know, Highwire is up to almost 11 facilities and, you know, all of that beer is being made out of one, like cu- customers, well, technically two, but uh, yeah, and that's not where customers are placing their value and that's not where they're deriving their value. And that's what one thing we really have to be responsive to is people like you and I, people like most people in the industry, we're not the customer. We're not even really the early adopter customer. We're definitely not the the average customer. And, you know, we really have to be more responsive and more sensitive to what those customers actually place value on. 
Yeah. Well, so here's an interesting question since you do deal with a bunch of distributors. Um, obviously learning the industry in 2011, 2012, I got in touch with a bunch of distributors that really didn't do craft and they were learning. And I want to say didn't it was not till maybe 16 when one of these guys used the metric of CEs per account. And for some reason, it was always like CEs and it was these different reports we would get. And then one day the old guy is like, well, all we ever cared about was the CEs per account. So that's why you go sit at the end of the bar and you suck up to the yeah. chick and you buy a bunch of beer. Do you have a lot of distributors that use that metric? Because I can tell you that's the only one that ever mentioned it to me. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> CEs per account is an efficiency metric more than anything. And that is, I do feel like fundamentally as an industry, we have a, a deep misunderstanding of who wholesalers are and what they're good at. And a lot of that is self-induced by the wholesalers. They spent a decade and a half telling us that they were brand builders. It's never been what they're good at. What wholesalers are very good at, and it's very, very simple. They're very good at getting product from point A to point B. That's it. They warehouse product, they get it to the account. And once you acknowledge that that's what they're good at and that's what they specialize in, they're not only a lot easier to work with, you, you can get a lot done because they're very, very good at that because at their core, they are efficiency engines. They are not an artisan industry. They are at their core, a very traditional big business who is purely uh, focused on profits and purely focused on being as efficient as possible. So CEs per account, that's purely an efficiency metric. That is saying we have to make a minimum number of deliveries and a minimum number of sales calls to sell as much product as possible. That's a wonderful thing for them. Uh, and it can be a wonderful thing for you. I actually do think we need to put a lot more of a focus as an industry on getting some diehard accounts that just really live or die by what we as a single brand do versus trying to spread, spread it out amongst a huge number of accounts that you're basically having to re-earn every single time because they're they're rotating like crazy. You see a lot of that in England where there's uh, bars that basically only serve five or six breweries, if that. Some of them only serve one or two, but they're absolutely diehard and will carry everything from that brewery. That's a lot more sustainable in the short term and the long term. So yeah, C's per account, uh, that's usually their way of telling you that we we're starting to to worry that we're losing our ass on warehouse space on you. So start to to really lean in on those accounts and make sure that we don't have to put that much effort into selling what you got. That's a lot more efficient, anyways. Even if you're paying for a full time salesperson, you're always going to be better off with them spending, uh, you know, that one hour of their day selling in. 10 cases and them jumping all over town and spending a ton of windshield time trying to sell one case into 10 places. Yeah. And then using that as an excuse for why they're not moving your beer. Right. Which <laughs> definitely also happens as one of the hardest positions to hire for in this industry, because so many people just see beer and job in the same sentence. And they're like, Oh my God, I finally made it. Uh, you know, it's hard to hire salespeople. There's not a huge amount of accountability uh, within that role. They're largely remote operators. You know, they're out in the market. It is very hard to, you can track their raw numbers. It's very hard to track what they're actually doing, even if you have something like Lilypad or VIP. Uh, so yeah, I've seen a lot more companies wind up upside down on their sales reps than be right side up on their sales reps. And I say as somebody who spent most of my career running routes. <laughs> From the inside, you can you know what it looks like. Nobody lost <laughs> money on me. That's all I'll say. All right. <laughs> well, I gotta say, I'm. Uh, I don't know why I'm disappointed, but I felt like you were gonna disagree with me more. Um, maybe I just itching for a fight, but 
Uh, ultimately, I think we kind of both think the same thing. It's going to be a struggle going forward overall, but there are ways and pockets to be successful. Uh, I will admit I'm still trying to flesh out where exactly I fit on where that success is. And, and simply because, you know, just so you understand, I feel like whatever I say, the new guy is listening to. And so if, if there's a responsibility there for me to be realistic first, positive second, if that's a realist, you know what I mean? So yeah. Um, now, in that sense, uh, I, I think it's going to be a struggle, but I do think some people will come out ahead. Well, I think in the, in in a weird sort of way, I I am a very realistic optimist, and I think in some ways you're you're a very positive pessimist, and so and I I think that's they they both wind up hitting some similar areas, but you know w- one thing for me is I. I really do feel like the best years for this industry are ahead of it. I really do feel like uh, what we're going through right now, uh, it was always inevitable. It was always going to be a challenge. Uh, But I feel like this is going to wind up making a better industry. Not an easier industry. There's going to be a lot of people who lose their livelihoods uh, in the process. But, you know, what alarms me, the thing that is the most difficult for me, and this isn't you, this is just a trend I've seen a lot more, is this sense that craft beer sucks. Craft beer has absolutely unfixable problems, ones that are absolutely unassailable and entrenched, and that there's nothing to be done about it. And my issue there is twofold. First, I don't think it's accurate, but more appropriately, I don't think anything positive gets done if you see no possibility of success. So, you know, you have to be able to say, here are the problems that are very real, but here are also solutions in the future. And if we work toward them, they can be accomplished. Nothing gets done if you see it as being uh, fatalistic or nihilistic, because at that point, why even try? And that's a trend that I've noticed way more since the pandemic, um, which Hmm. has coincided with the slowdown uh, in the industry and its growth. But uh, to the point where that doomerism, I really do think, is probably the single biggest threat to our industry is just that sense within the industry that this isn't worth saving, this isn't worth continuing to improve and to get better, and you know, just riding it, uh, riding it into the grave as we slouch on to Bethlehem. And I don't think that that's a uh, that's an attitude that helps anyone. Yeah, well, I definitely haven't encompassed corporate that into like what I've seen and talked to. So. I would I would agree with you on that side. There's never nothing that can be done. I just think there's been a long time of a lack of realism. And so that's part of what I'm trying to bring back to the industry. But even most of the people that I've talked to, I could name maybe one or two people I've interviewed for the podcast who are just like, fuck crap beer, I hate it. Everybody else is still kind of passionate about the whole thing. And they, you know, they experienced the failure and the end of their dream, but they uh they're, they're still the same, you know, passionate person they were. So I, I hope that continues, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, and I'll applaud you because I do think people can learn a lot more from, well, not a lot more, but I do, do think they can learn a lot, a very unique perspective from hearing from it from people who have not succeeded as much or more so from the ones who have succeeded. You know, there's a huge element of luck in any sort of industry when it comes to winning. Um, and I think from hearing from the people who didn't win, you really can get a good sense of the issues that most of us are a lot more likely to run into. And more importantly, the areas where it could have been done better or different um, based on that personal experience. So for a lot of folks, you know, listen to Ken Grossman. I have more, I'm a massive Sierra Nevada fanboy. Like I'm one step away from getting that company's logo tattooed on my ass, but uh, Ken's experience starting that place up doesn't do me a whole lot of good. 
even somebody yeah. uh, more recent, like the folks at Rheingeist, you have, have done incredible things up there. That's not the reality for 99.9% of this industry. And there's a lot of little wins and little successes that can still be had, but that's not the experience and the stories that are going to get them there. And it might lead them down some blind alleys that, you know, lead them away from the path that would get them the sustainable neighborhood brewery that owns all the local accounts, you know, the things that are, you know, attainable, the things that are realistic and the things that can make for a life where you can still afford your own rent and put a roof over your family's head and, and still enjoy this industry at the end of the day. Yeah, here, here. I, I can't tell you how many breweries I've, uh, you know, I'm in Texas, 45 minutes from Jester King and how many breweries wanted to put their and have put their brewery on a ranch in the middle of nowhere. And I uh, think they're going to be insanely successful. And I'm like, bro, you're, you're not like there's a thousand reasons yeah. why you're just not. Yep. For, for every Jester King, there's a million yeah. ones that did tried to do the exact same thing that uh, quietly closed the doors because they just couldn't make it work, which uh, Colin over at Jester King. Awesome, dude. Uh, shout out. But uh, they're good folks and also affiliates of Bavana Partners. So, Oh, that's right. I did know that. So, all right. Well, so to that end, how, how do they find you? I'll link it in the show notes, but tell them, uh, do they want do they want to look for you, look for Bavana or look for someone else? Yeah, so you can find uh, Bavana online at uh, Find Bavana is our most uh, common uh, social media handle. I think that's for pretty much everything at Find Bavana. But if you're looking for me personally, which for most purposes is just as well, especially if you want to hear me ramble on about absolutely nonsensical stuff like why peanut butter is evil and must be destroyed, you can find me online at Ale Chaser, A L E C H A S E R. That's pretty much everything other than Twitter. It's Ale underscore Chaser because somebody stole the name and they should be shamed and shunned but i uh, always love uh, having more people pop on i basically do nothing but post about beverage industry stuff and occasionally about my daughters who are pretty awesome but you know yeah, that, i guess that's a thing <laughs> well cool yeah so definitely reach out um i will also link in the show notes the article that we're talking about for those of you guys who like to read i'm aware this is a podcast but some of you do pick up reading and uh so you can get on brewbound's website and check that out as well aaron i absolutely appreciate you joining me and i have a feeling this will not be the last time that we chat on the show so hey looking forward to it kelly thank you so much for having me on and hey guys this is uh how not to start a damn brewery guy <laughs> knows what he's talking about all right man take care thanks uh, i just want to stop. end recording